Welcome to the Tell Me Podcast. I'm your host, Ilya. What's happening, everyone? Uh, I hope you've all been well. Taking this episode back to the land down under, where I have a chat with Jason Spivey. Jason grew up playing high-level footy, or AFL for those not from Australia. Um, He eventually decided to join the family business. And like me, Jason was a former Victoria police officer and served at some of the highest uh, crime areas in the state. He eventually moved to Queensland Police and successfully joined the Tip of the Spear Tactical Unit, the Special Emergency Response Team, also known as CERT. Eventually, Jason retired from the police and pursued a career in close protection, working in some of the world's most hostile areas. After spending a lifetime of service and working in highly discreet roles, you can now find Jason and his counterparts on the hit TV show Hunted, Uh, which has just recently aired on Channel 10 in Australia. So without further ado, you know, thanks everyone for tuning in. Jason, uh, mate, thank you for your service, for this conversation, and for making me miss Australia. A little homesick after this one. Uh, Please find Jason on the links in the show notes below. Uh, Thanks, everyone. Cheers. Jason, uh, thank you for, uh, you know, having this conversation with me all the way from Australia. I'm in Scotland. I desperately do miss Australia as well. It's been a couple of years now that we've moved here. Um, so yeah, thanks for being on the podcast. No worries. It's an absolute pleasure. Um, we we connected obviously on uh, on LinkedIn. I think we had a few sort of mutual uh, connections, and then the Vic Paul history, uh, the police yep. uh, history as well. So we'll we'll get all uh, into that uh, later on in the podcast. But yeah, the, the way the podcast is formatted, uh, formatted as we discussed was you know just sort of chronologically your life. Um, experiences, uh, any, you know, memories, that sort of thing. So, yeah, in as much detail as possible, tell me, uh, you know, about your beginnings. Well, I suppose I, you know, when I was a young bloke, I, I was pretty keen on my sport uh, and that sort of stuff. So I played a lot of football uh, when I was a young fella and and I sort of got to a point where I, I tried to make it into the AFL uh, when I was around about 17, 18 and, um I put a lot of concentration into doing that. Uh, I was lucky enough to go and train at St Kilda down in Melbourne in one of the AFL sides for a little while. Um, but I broke my arm that season, missed about eight weeks of football, which probably affected my ability to get drafted. Um, so I, I sort of didn't get drafted that year and I was asked to go over to Adelaide to play. Uh, so I played in the, in the state football league over there um, when I was about 19 or 20. I uh, played with the Glenelg Football Club. And again, I was still being watched at that point. So sort of all my, all my focus was trying to get on playing uh, football at that stage, you know, professionally. Um, I did an AFL traineeship with the Adelaide Crows uh, and the Glenelg Footy Club. Um, but at the end of the year, I just couldn't find any work that could sort of keep me in Adelaide. Um, you know, I played, I think, about eight senior games for the Bays at that stage, but just couldn't sort of get a, a foothold in the side. 
Um, and I needed money to live, so I sort of returned back to Victoria, and, and it was at that point that I applied to join into the uh, Victoria Police Force. Um, I had tried South Australia, but they weren't recruiting back then, so I went back to Victoria. My dad uh, had been a policeman for 19 years. Okay, yeah, family uh, business. So it was always, yeah, so it was sort of something that always uh, was something that I wanted to do. Um, but obviously football as a young fella, everyone's dreams to play AFL. But but when it didn't happen, obviously we fall back on our our second option, which was the police service. <laughs> and, uh, so I think it was 96 I went into the Vic Pole Police Academy. Um, obviously spent my time in there training. Um, about halfway through, I got back squatted. Um, our, our, our recruit class wasn't the most well-behaved. <laughs> Couple of us, it just happened. Both our dads were uh, ex-coppers, but we we were the ones who got pushed back four weeks to another squad. So we, we got we got lucky and got an extra month in the academy. So yeah, that's it. Right. <laughs> um, so we ended up. Yeah, we graduated sort of '96. Um, we did our time in CPD um, back then, and and then driver training. So yep. I think it was another two months before you ended up at your training station. And I got lucky. I got broad meadows. Okay, yep, nice and busy. Yeah, yeah, and obviously back then, you know, police was a little bit different than it is now, and, um, yeah, it was a pretty rough and rugged place to to learn the ropes, I suppose. Um, But I loved it. Yeah, it was a really good training station, and the bosses were very supportive, and because I was a footballer, uh, I was sort of forced into the police football. Um, So so I sort of had a bit of an agreement with the sergeants there that if I – if I played midweek police football on the Wednesday for, for the Northern Police footy team, they'd roster me on on Saturday and I could go and play state-level football for Coburg. So I got Make a bit lucky there. For you, mate. <laughs> yeah, so it was a bad day at work on a Saturday. So that sort of – it was really good. They, they really looked after me and, and I was pretty happy. But uh, more than anything else, I really learned a lot about policing in that sort of location because it was pretty rough and rugged. We had some, some pretty good crooks in that area. And yeah. the other – guys you work with there was a huge uh quite a number of the guys were very keen to become detectives and they used to have the um um the detective training school and then they had the field investigators course which you had to do before you could get right. into detective training so we had a group of guys there that were you know, probably four or five years senior to me that were all pretty keen and uh, and catching crooks is what they wanted to do and so it was pretty exciting, and every day you knew you were out there trying to catch, you know, crooks. It wasn't just a matter of cruising around doing nothing and doing as little as possible. We were actually out, you know, yeah. catching guys, and they used to have um, competitions so you could get the most briefs of evidence and that sort of stuff. So <laughs> it was yeah. a very good place to work. Yeah, well, that, that's awesome. That's uh, quite a fair bit to unpack there. But so just for because I so the audience ship at the moment is like divided between like a third UK, a third Australia, yep. and then a third US. So for all the uh, non-Australians, AFL is Australian, uh, you know, Aussie a- a- Football League. Um, yes. So heavily played in uh, South Australia, in Victoria, um, just just an awesome sport as well. Um, so what 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 got you into into uh, into footy? Was that just you know growing up watching it, the family yeah, sort of I, interest? Yeah, I started playing football when I was about uh, seven, I think, and uh, it was just something I've done from. From when I was a young fella, and obviously my dad played. And, yeah. um, growing up in Victoria, very heavy AFL state or VFL, yeah. I think it was back back then. But uh, love football. Just you know, it was something we played at school every lunchtime and yeah. and that sort of stuff. So it sort of played it right through. And then when I 
got to about 11 or 12, I started to sort of get get half decent at it, I suppose, and started to do the representative football. So, yeah, awesome. um, yeah and then obviously as you get older and the more representative stuff you do, the more opportunities arise to play at the higher levels. So, yeah. um, I was always pretty, you know, fit and, and healthy. So, um, I played basketball in the off-season and football in the winter. Um, but I gave basketball up and I, I shattered my eye socket when I copped an elbow in the eye. So I sort of thought, I'm going to play a sport that I get injured in, it may as well be football. So, yeah, that's it. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So it, it sort of, that's how I sort of got into it. I just sort of grew up with it, I suppose, from a seven year old. Nice one. And then the transition over to back to Victoria for the police. Um, what, what was the recruitment like for Victoria Police? Was it sort of one of those cycles where they were heavily recruiting or was it sort of a mid cycle type thing? Uh, when I rang South Australia, they, they literally weren't recruiting at all. Right. Um, VicPol, you sort of applied, and I guess they had intakes at certain periods of time. And um, I just went through the normal process where you you put your written application in, uh, you do a series of medical tests, series of written tests. Um, you had to go to Melbourne for that. I was living in Mildura at the time, which is about six hours away. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's sort of almost the furthest point from Melbourne, I suppose, uh, town-wise. So uh, you'd go to Melbourne, do your um, your medical down there, and you'd also do your uh, written tests, you know, all on mass, general knowledge, your knowledge of the police service, that sort of thing. If you pass all that, you then get an interview at your local police station. You go in and, and you get interviewed by the bosses or the senior sergeant, yeah. um, which is your, sort of non, yeah, your highest non-commissioned rank. Um, at the station, he's usually in charge. He'll do an interview with you and send the, the results of that off to Melbourne. Once you pass that, you then have to do a board meeting. Yeah. So you actually sit for commissioned officers and some public servants. Um, you'll answer your questions there. And if you're successful and, and, you, and you meet the requirements, then obviously you get invited down to um, the academy. And from memory, I think it was about six months thereabouts. About yeah. a bit less. But it was around six months you're doing the academy down in Big Pole. Yeah, yeah, in Glen Waverley as well. Yeah, that's right, at the old monastery there. Yeah, that's it. It's funny, like we've never met, but obviously we've probably walked down the same halls and run around the same tracks. Absolutely. Yeah, when I was going through, it was uh, 33 weeks of training, so like about nine months. We, we used to joke like, you know, it was uh, like Big Paul was giving birth to a new squad nine months. Um, <laughs> do you remember your uh, reg number? Yeah, I was uh, 31373. Okay, I was 413, so, you know... Uh, much, yeah. much, uh, much of a later vintage. <laughs> yes, well, I don't think you ever forget your number. I think it's something that just stays with you. So. Yeah, exactly right. And so, um, so yeah, you mentioned Brody. So I think twenty plus years later, it's still exactly the same uh, in terms of you know yep. the, the level of crime, the, the sort of crooks that get around there. Um, when I last left Vicpol, I was um, uh, I was working with the operations response unit, which is then Port, yep. and uh, we get sort of sent around the state wherever the high crime areas are and. Brody was certainly visited once or twice a week. <laughs> oh um, yes, yeah. So definitely the, the deep end learning for for a young uh, young sort of uh, you know probationary constable. Um, what what sort of jobs did you do uh, in Brody? Did you stay primarily at Brody, or did you move around at all while whilst you were in Big Bang? No, so I was basically 12 months at Broadmeadow, so that was sort of my training station. Uh, I was only young. I said I think I was 20, 21 when I graduated, so yeah. I, was, I was pretty young, really. 
Uh, it's been a job and obviously a younger fellow with a, with a police ID and things, like I said, things were quite different back then. We used to like to head out <laughs> after work and uh, sort of after 12 months, I'm, you know, I probably didn't have the money that I would have liked to have had. I'd probably spent a bit too much of it enjoying myself and uh, I ended up going back to Mildura where I grew up. So I ended up going back there for three years um, and working working there. So sort of a bit of country country stuff. But I knew most of the guys in Mildura because my dad had been the sergeant there. So yeah. a lot of my bosses were actually senior Connies and Connies under my dad. So nice, nice one. Yeah, so sort of went back there and then uh, moved back to Melbourne uh, in 2000, 2000. I went back to Melbourne and did another 12 months at Keeler Down St Albans. So Okay, yeah, yeah. That, another, another fun area. <laughs> I did like the action. Nice blend of sort of, uh, you know, metropolitan policing and country policing. I, I'd never done yeah. the country policing and I don't, you know, obviously don't regret it, but I wish I'd done a couple of years out in the country. That would have been um, really interesting. Um, and so, yeah, so um, did you say it in, in a general duties capacity? Or did you um, sort of do any specialisations whilst you were in? No, not in Victoria. So in Vic, I, I basically stayed in general duties. I did some sort of DSG work, which is obviously our plain clothes district yep. support group, which is your plain clothes, basic, you know, druggies type thing. We didn't used to wear the equipment belts back then. We could actually go over it a little bit. <laughs> yep. so, um, so, yeah, I did a little bit of that, not a lot, uh, but primarily it was just general duty stuff. So, yeah. Um, it, well, I said I was still only really junior when you consider I only did five years in Vic Pol. So I was still yeah. sort of only really started finding my feet after a couple of years. Yeah. As you know, it takes a little bit to get used to doing what you do. So, um, yeah, so I did three years general duties in Mildura. I sort of, I'd grown up there, so I knew a hell of a lot of people um, yeah. and stuff. And sort of after three years, just probably got a little bit uh, too much, I suppose. We couldn't go anywhere without running into the people that you'd arrested or you yeah. know, people wanting to know what you do. So that's why I sort of moved back to Melbourne, um, right. where things probably weren't as strict, I suppose, because all the bosses and everybody sort of live and, and breathe in the same area that you work. So it's sort of hard to upset people uh, yeah. without getting in trouble. You know what yeah. I mean? So. Yeah, we go back to Melbourne where you can just blend in. And when you're not working, you're not running into the crooks. And you know, the bosses aren't quite concerned if you do something a little bit over the top or something wrong. Yeah, yeah, no, fair enough. Um, and then what was the um, the, the decision to, to move um, out of out of Vicpol? Yeah, so 2001, uh, I was actually training for the SOG. I'd actually put an application in for the Special Operations Group. Okay, yeah. Um, and I was in training. I've been in training for a good six months because back then you had to do four years general duties before you could apply for yeah. the special operations group. Um, so at four years, obviously, I started training and, and that was my plan. Um, but I um, met a girl from Queensland who decided that she wanted to move back home. Uh, so my sort of proviso was that if I went to Queensland, I needed. I didn't want to uh, go back through the academy. Yep. Um, but Queensland were probably the only state that had what they called a retread program okay. um, where you could go and instead of doing the uh, six-month academy, you only did a, a three-month, okay, which yep. is sort of like a, it's just basically you go in and learn all the local Queensland laws, which are obviously different. Yep. Uh, not all of them, but most of them are a little bit different. And, and so you learn the laws, you do a few practical exercises in the academy, and then you sort of get released after six uh, after three months instead of six. Okay, nice. So, yeah, so I sort of agreed to go back there and, and I didn't want to, and I obviously want to go into the SOG. So in Queensland, they're called the Special Emergency Response Team, which is yep, the same. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, it's, a, it's the primary counterterrorism unit in Queensland. And I found out that after 12 months, I could apply 
for specialist units. So I agree. Yeah. So we made that decision to move to Queensland and, and I basically finished in big pole and seven days later, I was back in the Academy in Queensland. So I got like, <laughs> yeah. Diff- different baby blues. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. but the good thing was everybody sort of everyone at the Academy, they're all uh, ex coppers. So okay. everybody in the former police, either from Britain or another state in, um, you know, actually we had an American guy as well. So yeah. for that three month uh, sort of transition program. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah. I think I was speaking to a buddy of mine who's um, in the AFP now and they, they do a similar thing, obviously for um, all the state yes. agencies going to the AFP where you just do like a, you know, a couple of months in the Academy learning their local yeah. uh, legislation and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Yeah. And what was that like? Cause I would imagine, um, you know, like, uh, units like the, the SOG or the SCR insert in um, in Queensland, like you know, they're very fairly tight knit. Um, a bit of a you know, let's say boys club. Like generally, generally speaking, they know everyone knows each other. What was it like as a Vic Paul copper going over to Queensland? Were they you know quite welcoming, or did they you know was there a bit of a um, you know sort of jousting going on with you? Or? No, my experience wasn't too bad. The academy was good. Our instructor was ex-New South Wales copper, so he'd been through the process as well, okay. which sort of helped. Um, the boss in charge sort of above him, the senior sergeant, wasn't. Um, there were some issues when we were doing some practical exercises where people were obviously doing what we do operationally um, yeah. when we got hit with the scenarios. And, you know, obviously the senior sergeant worked behind a desk for a while and didn't really understand some of the, the practicalities that we were trying to do on the, in the practical and because they weren't meeting his requirements. Um, there was a bit of friction there and he ended up getting removed. So, okay. um, yeah, I suppose when you've got 25 ex-coppers or, you know, former police from other states sort of telling you that your, your tactics aren't quite up to scratch, you know, he probably get moved. So it, it was a it was a little interesting, but they tried to basically put X retreads with us to yep. make that transition smoother. Um, and again, when you graduate and then you go out to your station in Queensland, you get a mentor. So you right. actually get placed with a person basically for the first twelve months, and they're your permanent partner uh, unless they're on days off or um, holidays. And I guess the the hard bit is you, you go out there and they've only done two years, whereas you've got all the time under your, under your belt or whatever. So you've got these people overseeing your work that have got, you know, three, four years. And, and you know, we had guys that had done 15 years in a job that were going out and having, you know, constables with three years experience telling yeah. them what to do. <laughs> um, I, I suppose that's the only bit where you sort of go, that's a little bit strange, but. Yeah, you know, it's the process you go through, and and at the end of your first twelve months in the job, everything just goes back to normal. You automatically get your senior conning stripes. Oh, okay, um, cool. Yeah, and yeah. yeah, and then you can apply to go to any unit you like. So if you're a former detective, you can go to any detective, or you can start applying for the specialist units. Whereas a normal recruit will take a minimum two to three years to be able to do that. So, yeah. Okay. So that that time you had in the other uh, jurisdictions counted towards it. That's pretty good. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, yeah I, I had sort of a similar thing. I suppose so my wife is from Scotland, hence why we're in Scotland now. But yeah, same thing. Met a girl, wanted to move back home. So here we are. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, Police Scotland at this stage in time don't have like a sort of a transition or lateral sort of movement program uh, in the book. So I was like, uh, you know, like, like yourself, I didn't want to start back from the very beginning again um, and have to go th- through everything again. Um, so 
Yeah, so we're now what in two thousand one? Is this is this about right? Yeah, so that was two thousand and one. Went through the academy. So I did a bit of time. I so said when I graduated, I went to a little. I asked. I asked to go to a busy spot. I wanted to go. Uh, yeah, I'd worked in Broadie and. Yeah, Mildura's, Mildura's, even though it's country, it's the drug capital of... It is, yeah, I was going to say, it's a busy, busy country, yeah. Yeah, major drug crime up there. And uh, Keeler down St Albans, obviously, you know, again, yep. just, uh, just major drugs and, and you know, you have the, um, the, the, the bad drug community there and, and a lot of your underbelly sort of people. Live yeah, out especially that, that time, so, yeah. Yeah, so I wanted the busy station and um, I got told to go to West End, which is a little inner suburb of Brisbane. Uh, right near South Bank there, nice little area, but uh, again, there, there is some drug problems there. But um, So I, I went to West End, I did uh, 12 months, but the funny thing was, is I'd never forget my first shift, and um, I think we did three or four jobs for the day, and <laughs> I sort of said, oh, you know, I got told that this was a busy station, and they said, yeah, that is busy, you know, and I said, are you kidding me? And they said, no, why? Well, I said, well... I've just come from Keeler Downs where we were doing 25 jobs a day and handing yep. another 25 over at the start of the shift. <laughs> they just shook their head. I said, yeah. So it was good, though, because it allowed us to go out and actually look for crooks. So yep. we could actually get out and, and be very proactive um, looking for looking for the crooks there, which was which was good. So, yeah, I was going to say, like, um, the busier stations, you're kind of a, just a slave to, to D24, like dispatch and other yes. you know, states. So you just go on yeah. a job, job without really thinking. The, the job's almost done for you. You're just there to clean That's things right. up, wrap it up, you know, hand it over to CI, or if you're keeping the brief, you're just doing paperwork basically in a couple of days' time. But, yeah, the, the, the sort of mid-tempo stations are kind of where you kind of hone in this, the tradecraft of yeah. being a good police officer, really. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, 2001, and obviously you're wanting to join a tactical unit, um, you know, things like I've discussed previously on other episodes, like September 11th was a, it was a big flashpoint for a lot of people in the tactical community. Um, yep. Had things changed? Did you notice, you know, sort of tactics, trainings, procedures changing uh, in that sort of new era that we were living in? Not really. Not at a general duties level, not back then. Um, they certainly weren't. I was sort of falling into training to go into cert yeah. when all that occurred. Uh, so obviously when I went there, I knew that in 12 months, so I didn't stop training. And um, I applied, I'd done about nine or 10 months, I think, on the road. So you couldn't you couldn't transfer anywhere before 12 months. They hold you to tenure. Right. Um, they say, you know, 12 months is your tenure uh, or your, your training period. And then... But I applied for the course. So obviously, if you apply for the course, that's not a position within the unit. Um, it's just the course. So you do a one-day sort of fitness test initially, then you do a, a pre-selection course, which goes for about three or four days, and then you go on to selection itself. Um, again, selection is only a course. It's not joining the unit. So yeah. I applied for it. I was knocked back. I think it was about nine or ten months in, and I'd been knocked back because they said, no, no, you're held. Um, you're held back on tenure. And I said, well, I'm not applying for the unit. I'm just applying for a, a, a course. And when they sort of got their head around that, they, they allowed me to go yeah. on a course. So I was trained, but I broke my hand uh, in a, in a uh, scuffle with a crook after a big pursuit. And when I was getting my hand um, fixed, I actually ran into a cert guy uh, while I was there. And he'd actually been on a, on a job where he'd actually had two fingers cut off. Okay. And, yeah, so uh, a guy with a samurai sword 
swung his swung his sword and it went between a couple of shields and and actually took two fingers off the operator. So yes. he was in the same place having having his hand worked on at the same time. So I was, sort of had a good chat with him and and that sort of stuff and things had started to change, not only as a result of his incident, but because of the 9-11 stuff. So um, obviously once I got in, things had already sort of been implemented to deal okay. with the change. Yeah. But um, it was interesting to sort of chat to him and, and, and get an understanding of the sort of stuff they were doing rather than just from reading it in books or, you know, through the old intranet at work. So Yeah, nothing better than, a, than sort of a first-hand account of yeah. No pun intended with his lost fingers and your broken hand there. <laughs> um, can you, obviously, you know, don't go into all the details of like selection and stuff, but like, had you, you're obviously physically fit, you know, the AFL background, the athlete. Um, did you think that level of, you know, I, I think having a great fitness back, um, background would set the baseline very well, but in terms of your mindset and stuff, did you think you were sort of at that level that, you know, that you wanted to be? I did a lot of research, particularly a lot of reading um, of books, and, and there's nothing out there for police selection. Yeah. And I think a lot of people don't understand that the selection, the selection courses we run here in Australia, given you have a, you know you have a US and UK uh, audience, uh, where SWAT teams will sometimes select people based on uh, who you are. There's there's not a huge um, fitness requirement for a lot of their SWAT teams. They're obviously, they're major SWAT teams, yes, but some of the, yeah. the sort of country or the, or the, the lower level ones, um, our selection is based heavily on the SAS selection yeah. process. So fitness is like huge. And, and I used to run used to run 10Ks to work, ride 10Ks home, and then the next day to be ride to work, run home. So every day I was doing 20K minimum yeah, uh, riding weekends and or days off, I'd be riding and running more, etc. And so fitness was, was pretty massive. And and I read a lot of books on the SAS just because that was all that was available. Um, so so I read all that. Uh, and then the biggest thing that they all said was it, it's more mental than it is physical. And I think when you finish it, you sort of realise that it doesn't matter what fitness level you're at. Obviously, you need the base fitness. You need to be good enough to get through. Yeah. But it doesn't matter whether you're the fittest guy on the course that passes or the least fit guy on the course that passes. At some point in training, you'll, you'll, you'll get to a point where you think, I can't do this anymore physically. Yeah. And it becomes mental. So it doesn't yeah. matter how fit you are. They will find the point of breaking and they will push you through it. And what they want to see is that you're prepared to continue to go and continue to work even though physically you probably don't think you can. Yeah, no. Um, it's people who get to that breaking point that go, I can't do this anymore and pull out that miss out. So yeah. if you can get that mental capacity to say this is all just a game on selection, it's all a game, um, and there's nothing that's going to stop me from getting through, nothing will. you just yeah. got to go into it with the best mindset that you can. But mentally was was the biggest one for me. Yeah, no, I think that mirrors um, a lot of sort of, you know, conversations I've had and like you said, like books that are out there where it's like, you, know, you can, you can, you know, prime your body as best as possible, but at the end of the day, they, they will break you in whichever way they, they can. It's just the ones that, yep. you know, stick through mentally. Um, what, what were the, I don't know if you can talk about it, but what were the numbers sort of like, do you remember how many were on your course and how many went yes, through? Yes, we had, yeah, we had 40 applied. So 40 people had applied for our course. Um, out of the 40, 
uh, 15 were invited to the pre-selection course. So 40 apply, then you do your, your one-day fitness test, which consists of quite a, a few different fitness um, tests, a, a 10K run in less than 46 minutes, you yeah. know, uh, 400 swim in uh, eight minutes, uh, I think less than eight minutes or eight minutes, push-ups, sit-ups, you know, the basic yeah, stuff. Yeah, usually. Yeah, so from that, 15 were invited onto the three-day pre-selection, and that that three-day pre-selection sort of mimics, I suppose, um, the well, it doesn't mimic it. It's three days, no sleep, uh, minimal food. You carry everything you need for the three days, and it just becomes a smash fest. Yeah, uh, you don't sleep at all, um, and then from that, 15, uh, seven were invited onto selection. Okay. So selection is 14 weeks. Um, and then from the seven that went into that, four graduated. So uh, it's a 10% pass rate, and that's about average. Okay, 10% yeah. will get through. Yeah, nice. Well, and then so from, from there, do you, uh, you, like you're saying, it doesn't guarantee that you're put on a team or anything like that, but what's the, what was the wait time between you know, finishing and then uh, getting onto a team? Yeah, so each week, each week in selection, you actually vote for your teammates. So you actually vote... Um, for who the best guy is and then who the worst one was. And um, <laughs> those votes are collated. And then basically at the end you get your um, – you, you get a list of uh, your ducks of squad or your, yep. your ducks of the course uh, and then second, third and fourth out of that. And then you will be taken into the unit based on where you fall um, right. in that list. And that's dependent, again, on how many positions are available. So I remember when we finished, there were only two positions still uh, available at the time. I was lucky enough that my um, my general duties um, division released me pretty much immediately, so I got oh, seconded. Cool. Yeah, so I got seconded uh, almost immediately in. I think it was about a month before I went in. Um, the second guy would have been about a month after that, and then yeah. the other two probably another month after that. So again, it just depends on what positions are available. Whether your region or your district will release you straight yeah. away or not. Uh, I just got pretty lucky that um, well, I got the ducks, so I got put straight through um, by my guys, which was really good. That's awesome. Yeah, you, you, it doesn't happen often. Or I haven't heard it happening often, but you do hear it occasionally where, like, yeah, you don't get that release uh, from your yeah. division. And um, you know, that's such a you know, shitty move, uh, move on their part. But I, yeah. you, know, you want to keep the talent. I suppose, but um, you know, at the end of the day, it's you, you've worked hard for that spot. So, no, that's awesome. So, that are we talking about like sort of 2002 now? About uh, yeah, so in end, end of 2002, I think by the time all the course finished, etc., it was late 2002. Yeah. Um, and then obviously, once you get into the teams, um, I went into a sniper, a sniper team. So the unit sort of split up into we had back then we had four teams in Brisbane and we had two teams in Cairns. Yep. Um, we have two sniper elements and two entry team elements, and each team consists of back then we considered uh, seven guys in each team. So it's yeah. pretty elite, pretty pretty small unit. Uh, and then you spend probably the first two to three weeks redoing all your qualifications on all your firearms and learning how to operate with your team. Yep, yep. Uh, and only once the team leader signs off on you, uh, can you go out on operations? So you, even though you get there, you know, straight away you're not you're not running around on jobs until you know, your your team's comfortable that you can do what they need you to. Yeah, no, fair enough. A small team dynamic, the close quarter sort of dynamic. Um, yeah, you know, Australia being um, you know comparatively to the US, not firearms heavy. Privately, had you had much yep. time behind a gun uh, prior to uh, you know? 
joining this that sniper team like had you done much shooting before that yeah i was a pretty keen hunter growing up so okay. sort of gone hunting out with my dad and, and that sort of stuff and you know i always loved to go out shooting when we did our firearms calls but um yeah hunting was probably one of the main things i did but not uh yeah it wasn't every weekend or anything like that uh which yeah. is probably a good thing because uh, if you go there with some preconceived ideas, the way they teach you, they want to teach you the way they want you to do things. So yeah. um, I think sometimes people go there with with these skills that they've got from outside, but they're not quite what, they don't quite match up to what we teach or the way we teach. So you've sort of almost got to strip yourself back and forget everything you know anyway yeah. and, and start. And even, even with the pistol stuff, you know, um, general duties get taught differently. And we use a different pistol uh, sure, in the yeah. tactical unit, so yeah, you're literally being sort of stripped back to the back to the beginning and start again. So yeah, I mean, there's a lot of yeah bad habits you pick up, I suppose, if you're not taught right from the outset as well. So like just, just the yeah. foundations, um, I think, yeah. in order to sort of excel anywhere, you need to know the basics um, per- yeah. you know, perfectly if you can. Yeah. Um, I remember speaking to like a one of the instructors, um, and they were saying this new age of YouTube and people learning things on their own. It's like, it's beneficial, but you're also, you know, you could be going down the wrong rabbit hole learning, yeah. you know, really bad, uh, bad. Yeah, absolutely. Tactics. They spend um, a lot of time on it. Um, the first four weeks of selection is, is based around weapons training. So you, yeah. do, you do a full week of training on every weapon you handle um, in the first month. So yeah. it, it's a pretty big thing. And if you fail one of those, either the theory or the practical testing, um, you're off the course. Yeah. So. It, it's, it's actually, I was going to ask you a couple of questions. Well, um, it's good having you from QPOL because I've, I've never, I don't know how sort of the other jurisdictions operate, but, you know, VicPOL, they've got obviously Saugat, Tip of the Spear, you have CERT um, that, that do the other elements, and then underneath that, you know, all the other specialist units. Uh, how is QPOL organizes it? Uh, cert and then is there anything sort of in between uh, yeah so you have cert and then obviously your old cert or CIRT yeah. um, they used to be known as PSRT okay. um, they uh, they got the same so force response unit yeah, PSRT actually I think it's PSRT in Queensland so public safety response team which is your yeah. riot control okay um, gotcha. yeah so they're your guys that, that go out and do all your riots they now support Cert, so they've sort of got the same role as the critical incident response team in right, Victoria. Yeah. So, so certain warrants, um, um, like a category of warrants. Yeah, um, they yeah. sort of the first response, sort of first response to a domestic incident, that sort yeah. of stuff. So you have people who have some basic tactical training. Uh, they have similar firearms to what we use and, and yeah. tactics. Um, they often train. I know now they actually train together. Um, and operate at the same building anyway, but they train cool. together um, so that the PSRT guys have that capability to assist in an outer perimeter yeah. at any sort of incident. They won't ever come into the into the actual inner cordon, but um, at least you've got tactical-minded people, you know, yeah. now standing in the cordon, which frees up the entry teams and stuff to do a little bit more uh, dynamic stuff. Yeah, so yeah, good uh, sort of interoperability there. Um, yeah, it yeah. Sounds, sounds about the same as, as Vic Paul then. And, yeah. and I suppose like yeah, you know, Queensland, Queensland's only getting bigger and uh, there's lots of international sort of uh, activities going on now, which is, like things like Commonwealth Games and things like that would have uh, raised the profile a bit. Um, yeah. yeah, so so yeah, so yeah, initial teams was um, sort of the sniper element and then, um, yeah, just walk me through what, what you did at, at CERT. Yeah, so I went into uh, golf team, which is which is primarily a Sierra team. So in CERT, 
which is a little bit different to most is that we get cross-trained in every uh, aspect. So um, you're not just a sniper, you're also entry team. So you can slip into any role. Uh, each team has a specialty. So uh, one team might be specialist at roping. Uh, another team might be a specialist at um, method of entry and yeah. most lethal tactics. And then you've got another team, which is a specialist in water operations okay. and that sort of thing. You cross train in all of them. So you'll, once you get into the unit, you'll do a course, you'll do courses constantly. So you'll be constantly training in all the different aspects so that, you know, we used to do a roster of eight on seven offs, but on your seven days off, you might go on call, but you can go on call for any team because right. you have all the skills. Um, obviously you concentrate heavily on what you do in your own team. Yeah. Um, but, you, you can do them all. So our team was primarily sniper, but we were also water operations. So we used to do a lot of water operations stuff as well. Nice, yeah. um, and then obviously entry team. So we do a lot of surveillance work, uh, particularly on crops, um, any searches, that sort of stuff we would get called out. Um, we didn't have a search and rescue team back then in Queensland. I still don't know if they do today, but we never had a search and rescue. So we were the specialists in doing um, any roping recoveries uh, and that sort of stuff. So teams would be sent out to do that, searches and that sort of thing. So um, I think it's probably a little bit more streamlined now, um, given that, yeah, that it's been a long time since I've been in there. So I'd imagine that have some capabilities now, which have taken that away from cert that, um, so yeah, so each team sort of specializes, but everybody has the skills to be able to do what everyone else does. Yeah. Um, I got lucky. I got a, I became the team medic. So we ran through a medic pro two week medic program with the Queensland ambulance. Okay, cool. Uh, back in, yeah, but back in 2002, it was sort of funny because the course I, I look now and, and the course is basically the TCCC program, okay, yeah. which yeah. most people will be aware of now, or TECC, whichever way you want to go. Um, but back then, it was way ahead of its time. We were doing all that stuff sort of back then, uh, 2002. So uh, a lot of the basic first aid stuff you do now, um, which was different back then, has all changed. We were doing that back then. So um, a guy by the name of Tony Hucker, who's tied up with the Queensland Ambulances here, was just you know, way ahead of his time and, and set up this brilliant program so nice. so yeah so i was a medic for you know for our team every team had two qualified medics and that sort of stuff so yeah, it was a real learning opportunity especially when you first got in to do a lot of courses and, and get a lot of skills up yeah that's awesome and did you did you manage to go on like uh did you do sort of uh shadowing with ambulance like like do you go on board and we were them. able to. I, I never did, but we certainly had the opportunity to at times. It just depended on when things fell because the operational tempo is normally fairly high. Yeah. Um, so that we did regular six months uh, full training uh, with them. They come out. So we had all sorts of drugs and that we had to qualify on anyway, that we had to be licensed to carry and all that sort of thing. So um, there was a lot of training, uh, but yeah, I never got the opportunity to go myself. Uh, but I know other guys certainly don't. I know now they've got a really good relationship uh, with them and, and they do work uh, yeah, side nice. by side. And like you were saying, like, you know, uh, nowadays you, you hear TCCC and there's like heaps of companies that, that go out and privately train people. But back then, that's that's pretty impressive. Um, even up to the point where like where I left, like, you know, things like tourniquets and stuff like they, they it was almost like, oh, like, do we apply that? Or can, yeah. is that you're going to lose a limb and like, like that's such a backwards, you know, like it, it, it was insane that, um, you know, they weren't <laughs> readily available in, in all our vehicles. No. Um, yeah. So yeah, that, that op tempo would be 
insane just because of the sort of the scope that you guys had to deal with. That's um, I'm hoping that's it's a bit more streamlined now, but yeah, yeah, it was busy. It, it, it was busy, but the, the jobs you do, we have a we, we do things called containing call out. So rather than actually you know, doing an entry into a house, you, you stand outside and call the people out yeah. and that sort of thing. So it's less intrusive and, and and that sort of thing. And when you train all day to kick doors in. And that's what you want to do when they yep. do a lot of pain and call outs. You sort of start to question why you're going. Um, <laughs> and, and and it's sort of funny. I, I, I remember one time we turned up at a, a bikey stronghold and we were doing a contained call out on a bikey's uh, stronghold. And we started hearing all this yelling and, and, and doors and that getting kicked in next door. And it was just the local plainclothes detectives in the house next door actually doing an entry while we're all standing outside yeah. in full, you know, and I think guys got a little bit frustrated with it. Sure. Um, so obviously in 2005, I think I got out, um, Iraq had obviously happened. Yeah. And uh, and I think nearly half the unit left just because okay. the, the, just weren't being used for jobs we thought we would be. Financially, it was better to go and do other stuff and use the skills that we'd had. So, yeah. Um, yeah, as fun as it was and as busy as it had been, sort of things slowed down a bit sort of around that 2004, 2005 era. Yeah. I, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Jarhead, but it's sort of like that, you know, like where you're, you're, you're trained up to this level, you you know, and all you do and all you think about is that training and using it in the real yeah. world and never being able to utilise it. That would, that would, you know, drive me crazy. Um, I, I yeah. could completely understand the sentiments there. Um uh, I was going to say as well with the medic stuff, um, you know, it's, uh, uh, the, I guess the saying is like it's the least sexy of the tactical sort of capabilities, yeah. but the one that's most utilized. Did you have um, yeah. any, any sort of, uh, I know the guys might not have done a lot of the entries and stuff, but like, did you actually get to utilize your medical training? Yeah, yeah, we did. We had a couple of shootings that we were involved with that, that required, you know, um, guys to utilise their skills. So um, it, it's certainly something, you know, not just on ourselves, but on obviously on crooks and stuff that have been shot. So yeah. there's certainly, it, it's something that we had to have. Um, and like I said, I think we, we were probably a bit ahead of our time uh, with the TCCC stuff and, and particularly the counterterrorism role where now, we have red zones and orange zones and, and green zones, et cetera, yeah. where we can do things under TCCC. We didn't have that sort of back then, but we sort of had a system where we always took two paramedics with us on a job. Okay. Yeah. So two, two fully qualified. Any job we did, two paramedics would always come out, but um, they were never allowed into a, into a hot zone. Yeah. Sure. So until the area was fully cleared, they could never come in. So, um, we had to have those guys there that could actually utilise the skills that they had. And, we, I mean, we could do drugs, we could do IVs, we could do sort of all sorts of stuff. It, yeah. it was well ahead of its time back then. So, yeah. Um, but, yeah, we certainly used it operationally both, you know, with our own guys and, and crooks. Yeah, so as if, uh, if you're learning how to make holes, you better learn how to plug holes as well as the saying goes. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> um, a lot of people don't understand it. I know, you know but people often ask you, how can you shoot someone and then you, you're trying to save their life and they don't realise it. You know, you're not there to try and shoot someone or kill someone and you have the obligation, you know, to, to try and keep them alive. Yeah. It's, it's just an inherent thing. So, uh, yeah, I know there's some people don't, don't quite get their head around that and you just... <laughs> Not so many you're trying to keep them alive. So yeah, no, yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic. Yeah, the, the, that life saving skill, like it's like I said, it's it's not the sexiest thing to be uh, labeled maybe the medic on the team, but you're probably the one that's going to be called up the most. 
Um, so, yeah. so 2005, um, you're saying, so was that when you when you left uh, Queensland Police? Yeah, so 2004, obviously, 2004, 2005, with Iraq kicked off, uh, a lot of private contracts started to pop out. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah. And, uh, and I was going through some stuff personally, uh, separated from my wife at the time, um, and an opportunity popped up to be interviewed for a job in Iraq. Okay. So there was half a dozen of us, I think, went and probably got interviewed, and then out of that, I think four of us went across um, I was on leave without pay at the time, so um, so I sort of went over. Um, it was with a company called Osprey Asset Management out of Perth. It was run by some ex-regiment guys, and we were working for the Iraqi Electoral Commission, delivering all the ballot equipment for their first ever um, democratic election. Yeah, yeah, democratic votes. So we yeah. were delivering the ballot equipment all over Iraq. So my particular team was delivering into Sadar City every day. So okay, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was, um, had, had you done much uh, like international travel, um, you know, uh, before that? None. No. None. So I think I'd been to Bali on, a hol- Bali on a holiday. Yeah, well, Bali is basically another state in Australia, really. <laughs> <laughs> no, wow, that's, that's incredible. So, um, so first international trip outside of Bali was, uh, was Iraq. How, um, how yeah, did that go? Yeah, it was good. I actually really enjoyed it. It was um, a bit of an eye-opener, obviously, you know, coming from a, a policing-type background to walking into a, a, what was a war zone at the yeah. time. Um, but there were a few coppers over there. Uh, and like I said, yeah, there was a couple of us that went over on the same contract. Although one of the guys got sent north uh, and, I, and I was in the city. But there were guys – I remember going to the airport to pick up a new t- – couple of guys that were coming in and we had a guy I'd grown up with stepped off the plane. He, he'd been in the army and got out and sort of, sort of hip. So it wasn't like I didn't know people. It was sort of, you weren't made to feel uncomfortable because you're yeah. ex copper or anything like that. And, and my team leader, um, guy by the name of Rick Mossop, um, he, he was ex regiment, ex SAS, but he was also ex cert. Okay. So, with my TL, so it was sort of good. I think it was probably handy to have someone that had the same background as I yeah. had, but he also had that military yeah. side. Um, and the other guy in my team was an ex Rhodesian SAS guy, so okay, um, yeah. and it was just the three of us with some locals that drove around everywhere every day. So, um, anyway, so I think it was sort of good just having people that knew you or, or, or knew the background that you come from. Yeah. I think it would have been a bit harder if I tried to step into a full. You know, ex-military special forces team, which I yeah. experienced a little bit later on. So, um, but no, it was good. I actually really enjoyed it. it. It was. We lived on the end of the airport at the end of the end of the runway uh, with a company called Custer Battles. You know, they were losing guys every week. They were having cars destroyed every week. Um, we didn't lose a single person or a single car. So, we'll yeah, well, awesome, nice. And did you find that, like, was there you know pre-deployment sort of training, um, like leading up to it, or was it just the the interviews and then we're off off we go? Yeah. So we, so we did the interviews and then it was basically right. Yeah, you've got the job. You're on a plane. Off you go. So, um, and got picked up. Yeah. We flew over to uh, Jordan initially, yeah. sort of stayed two days in Jordan, just waiting for the next flight out, and then got an Iraqi Airlines flight in, and, and I've never seen it, never been on a plane like it. It had gaffer tape holding the lockers on. <laughs> uh, it actually had leg room, so I knew the plane was old. And uh, and, and yeah, you, when you come in to land, you do a big corkscrew, so you can't just fly in, obviously. But yeah. they do this massive big corkscrew, and I think it's about the last kilometer is is straight, so it's like crazy landing and. 
you know, to go to places where all your luggage is thrown out on the tarmac and as you get yeah. on the plane, you've got to identify your bag and any bag that's not identified is treated as a bomb. And sure, it wow. was a real, you know, it really was, but I really enjoyed it. You know, yeah, like I said, there was another company that um, control risks, I think it was. There were a lot of guys working, probably about four or five of the cert boys were working for them. So okay. yeah. they were in a building not too far away and you could catch up here and there you nice. know, around, around the green zone. So it was pretty good. Yeah. And did you find that thing? And sorry, I also sense a bit of a deep end kind of like theme in your life here from, you know, like graduating Vic Paul, going to, uh, going to Brody and all that sort of stuff. And then, and, and this now, um, did, did you find things, you know, the war had recently sort of, I suppose, you know, a couple of years prior it kicked off were, were things organized or was it just complete chaos or like, how, how did you find the sort of logistics and, and that sort of thing? It was actually pretty organised. I didn't have any dramas, really. Everything was there. They, they had all the camp was set up. Um, obviously, yeah, we we had locals there that had been employed uh, full-time to assist us. You know, we all had local drivers with a, with an extra in the car with us. Um, you know, the teams were all set up prior to yeah. us arriving. That had already been done. It wasn't a case of stepping in and then go, okay, you, you and you were together. It was all okay. well And again, like I said, you know, when you've got ex- yeah, regiment guys who were quite squared away. Um, yeah, you weren't going into an ad hoc little you know business yeah. that they'd done it properly, and, and it was and it, that was I guess why they got the contract. Yeah, you know, they yeah, were guaranteed. Awesome. They, I think they were the only company that uh, offered to fly all the equipment around in helicopters. I don't think anyone else could offer that that capability in a twelve contract. So, um, but it was good. It was you know we had proper meals, we had full kitchen, the whole works. So it, it was a good setup. Nice, that's awesome. And how long were you there for? Jeez, uh, oh, I think I did about two to three months. We stayed in, um, we stayed generally there, but then during the week of the elections, we went to a place called Camp Grey Wolf, okay. uh, which was an American base based out of Uday Hussain's Palace. So we stayed there for about a week, just over, I think, during the elections. And then afterwards, we went and collected everything and brought it all back in. And then basically, that was the contract. So, yeah, yeah, cool. You know, I came home and dealt with me personal issues. I was going to say, put a little pause in it while you were there. And then, uh, you know, it's still there when you get back, obviously. <laughs> That's it. Um, you know, a lot of the guys, like, so I, I work in close protection um, here in the UK. And obviously, there's, there's a lot of, uh, guys that you know have come bounced back between uh, Iraq and Afghanistan well, before the whole Afghan Afghanistan thing kicked off Afghanistan and um, so you know a lot of the stories are that the the sort of types of jobs back then when you were going in were just way more lucrative than they are these days um, you know yeah. like, is, is that sort of the same sentiment that you found um, with with you know people you're in the industry that you still connect with Oh, absolutely. Well, I remember you know, when we went over there, I mean, one of the main drawing cards was the money. You know, yeah. we, we were on you know, eight, 800 to 1,000 a day yeah. uh, on that contract. You might only spend three hours out in the roads, but you know, you, you're making some good coin. It was all tax-free. Yeah. Uh, it, it was good. You know? And then, what, 2017, I went to Afghanistan to work there at the embassy. And you know, when I left there, they were on... I think it was about three hundred and fifty dollars a day, you yeah. know, and it's even less now. You know, I think they're only earning about two hundred and fifty dollars a day, and before they shut everything down, so it's it's um, and you saw that over the time, and and that just you know, the, the quality of the guys that that then attracts yeah. reduces as well. So um, you know, you pay for what you get for, I suppose. 
Yeah, exactly. Right. So, and I think that's like a theme in, in security in general is, uh, you know, it, it kind of in the moments that you need it. Yeah, you'll pay the money. And then once things start becoming complacent, you know, it, it just goes by the wayside. Um, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so three months later, you're back in Australia. And then is that is this your new trajectory now, the private sector? That's where you're going professionally? I did want to go. I really wanted to go back, but I obviously going through a divorce. I had a 12 month old daughter. Um, I was going through the courts with that. So it was just too difficult to pack yeah. up and go again. Yeah. Um, so I set up my own business uh, 2005. I started a company. That was called uh, my call sign when I was in cert is Ibis. So because I've got a big bent nose like a mother. So, uh, <laughs> nice. That was my call sign. So I started a business called Ibis Surveillance and Investigation Services. Now, don't laugh, but that's actually ISIS. <laughs> so 2005, I started a business, ISIS. So <laughs> that is true. So I, and I basically did um, surveillance work for insurance companies, private security, uh, private surveillance jobs, um, and that sort of stuff. Because obviously coming from a sniping background, yeah, surveillance was sort of yeah. like a major thing. Yeah, uh, but I also used to do the actual factual investigations. So I do all the investigations plus surveillance. I did that for about ten years. So I just went back to Mordura um, for a little while, then back to Bendigo. Then I moved to Bendigo for about nine years. Yeah, uh, ran a really good, really good little business we had going there with my brother-in-law, uh, covering the whole state up into New South and across into South Australia, and literally just doing surveillance and investigations work. Yeah. Well. Uh, yeah, and then in probably about 10 years, I just had a gut full. So um, work cover or a lot of the insurance companies made it a requirement that to do mental health claims, uh, you have to have done a certain course. Uh, and I was the only investigator basically from Bendigo North um, that had that qualification. So my last probably two to three years was just spent dealing with mental health work cover claims, yeah. uh, many of which... Hey, I could write a statement without even asking them a question and hand it to them and they'd sign it and say, yeah, that's true and correct. So yeah. <laughs> sort of got a little bit, little bit too too boring and a little bit, you know, over the top with what I was hearing. So I threw my hat back in the ring to the high risk stuff um, yeah. and started doing the close protection work, which came about, I went to New Zealand um, after the earthquakes Okay, yeah, Christchurch. And I did some work over there and ran into a guy, is how small our world is. I ran into a guy there, um, Pat but he he was an ex Star Force operator, so he was the South Australian version of CERD or okay, SOG. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we got chatting, and it was, must have been a couple of months later, not long after, he sort of ran up and said, I've got a job on Kangaroo Island for you um, over in South Australia. And it was actually looking after Bill Gates. So, oh, no, it, um, yeah. I got into that, and then from there, that sort of kicked off the close protection work. So from yeah. there, I moved from the. I kept doing the investigation surveillance work until the close protection work sort of started to yeah. get a bit more. But Australia is pretty, pretty easy. The risks is the risks aren't great. So a lot of your people that you would think might have security here just don't. You know, yeah, they just don't need it. So, um, so after that um, initial bit, I then started to look overseas again for work overseas and. Manus Island kicked off yeah. um, in that 2015, I think. So yeah. 2005 to 2015, I did the, the surveillance investigation work. Nice. Um, so so the, the only thing I took from that was that if we deep-dived into your history, you started ISIS. 
I started <laughs> ISIS. I did. And I still have the email address, Isis Mundura at Hotmail. There you go. That's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> at least they can't get that. Um, that's, no, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, so it, it is, it's funny, like, once you get into, I guess, you know, the the jargon is is the circuit. It's 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 easy enough. You know, you start meeting people and different jobs pop up. It's a whole it's a whole another world, I suppose. Almost like the police, there's all these jobs that you don't really hear about because they're not advertised, and you start digging in yeah. a bit more, and, and, and they start popping up. Um, how, how did you uh, find sort of the you know was the professional professionalism consistent through all the jobs that you did? You know, with with the CP teams and that. Uh, no, it, it's sort of funny. Australia is a bit of a funny country. People think if they walk someone from an RSL to their car, they're doing close protection work. And, and it's actually it's actually legally required to have a close protection license for it because they're protecting a person. So technically yeah. they have to have a license for it. And um, so a lot of security guys, they might have it on their license, but they've done a really basic course. They might have done sure. one module that, that sort of allowed them to get the... the tick of approval i suppose but they you know these guys that you'd ask them about advanced work and they wouldn't know what it was you know, yeah what's advanced you know i don't know so um sort of later on you started to meet the other guys that were sort of coming back from iraq yeah. and afghan um who actually know what they're doing and 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 how to go about doing things properly and and there was probably a, a a few companies that started to provide quality guys, you know, um, not all of them were licensed, but at least they were quality operators, yeah. I suppose. Um, but, yeah, there is a big difference between the guys that have sort of been international and worked yeah. uh, and the guys who have only ever been security guards that do it here. So, yeah, huge, it, you know, it, and it's quite quite obvious. It, it's it's a, kind of the same here in the UK. Um, you know, I, I'd never even looked into close protection privately or anything when I was in the job and then coming here, I was like, Oh, I need to do something else. But yeah, there's like a, it's called the SIA. They, um, there's like the main body that, um, uh, takes the boxes, I suppose, but you get a whole plethora of people, you know, some that obviously need it for the, the, the licenses to go hostile and all that sort of stuff. But then some guys who just, you know, want that extra on top of like a door supervisor sort of license. Yep. Um, so it's a it's a real mixed bag. How does it work in Australia? Is it each state has their own, or is, is there a national? You know, no, so body? so you have national training, which is run by ASQA, Australian Security Quality Association, whatever they're called. Um, they sort of provide the course, so okay. it's a nationally recognised course. Um, recognised training organisations can run that. The, the people are supposed to have uh, a background in it. You're supposed to have competency in it before you yeah. teach it. Not always the case, but you're supposed to. Yeah. Um, so, and then each state regulator, which in some states it's the police, other states it's just a government agency, um, they'll, they may not accept the training from another state. So even though you've gone and done a course in another state and it's a nationally recognised certificate, they don't recognise it because they don't believe the quality of it is up to their requirements. Yeah. Yeah, they work that out. But Victoria and New South Wales are probably the two strictest um, on requirement because the RTO has to be registered with the regulator to be able to provide the course for their licence. Yeah. Um, Queensland, any RTO can do it. Um, Northern Territory, you don't even need a licence to be a close protection operator. Yeah. Um, <laughs> sort of different everywhere. 
Um, but yeah, it, it's very different. And the quality's, you know, really shown. They changed it all last year. I think it was last year. They bought out a new course in close protection. Uh, but again, it's, yeah, it was just a tick in the box sort of thing. Yeah, it's written yeah. by people who don't have much of an idea. And, uh, yeah, yeah admin people writing courses. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's all about like sort of capturing as much money as possible as well, I suppose. Um, Absolutely. You know, we don't we don't believe in your quality, so do our course and we'll make more money. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and, and then I think one thing a lot of people don't know is that in Australia, you don't have a licence that covers you for the whole country. So okay. You have to have a licence in every single state that you operate. Wow, but even okay. if you yeah, so even if you um, have an operator license, if you run a business and you have a client that comes out and they want to go to multiple states, your business has to be licensed in each of those states. Wow. So for me, you know, running a bit, I have a company license in Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia, and then I have an operator license, which allows me to do the work. So even my company yeah. license doesn't allow me to do the work. I have to have another operator license that then for every other state. And, and a lot of people from overseas don't realise that. So they'll hire a company that might have a licence for Queensland yeah. that they're going to sit, but they engage the Queensland people and none of them have got, none of them are legally licensed in the other state. And I think a lot of, a lot of clients don't understand that and they're not going to ask. They, they just ask if you've got a licence and the company goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I've got a licence. Yeah. Yeah, they, yeah. they send them the one they have, but not for the ones where they're going. So. Yeah, they, they don't care. They just want it to work, no. really. And, and, and fair watch. enough, like if they're paying the money, they just want something to work. But like, and the regulators can't, yeah, and the regulators can't track it. You know, like if you're not licensed, they don't know that you're operating or not. Yeah, so. yeah, exactly. And like, I mean, like I'm sure, you, like obviously, the working with people like Bill Gates and ultra high net worth individuals, they don't really care. You know, like they might want to have dinner in Melbourne and then have, watch a show in Sydney, and you know, like it's correct. Just, yeah, it's it's you you'd think it'd be more uh, practical, but like like we said, it's run by people who don't really know what they're doing. So yeah, yeah. Well, they did bring uh, it. They bought in this year. They bought in national licensing or or the mutual recognition laws change where you could operate on one license, but all the security regulators requested an exemption and got it. So you still have to have a license in every state. Yeah, mental. And so did that? Re, did you rethink, uh, you know, like uh, having a company? Like what was the mindset like for you then? Like, you know, with all these sort of uh, nuances? No, nah, not really. Because even to do the investigations and surveillance across borders, I needed all those licenses. Okay. So no matter what, you were stuck having to have licenses and stuff in every state. Yeah. It was just an expense that you had to cop. So yeah. um, I lived on the border. So Mordura was, uh, so and my company's called Tri-State Group, basically because I lived on the border of three states. States, yeah. That's how, that's how we got the name. So, um, yeah, from the inception of the company in 2017, um, we've always had three, you know, we've had a minimum of three company licenses anyway. So yeah. and better, better than ISIS company. as well. So, like, <laughs> that's it. That's it. I've still got ISIS. I've still got So, when we moved to Queensland, it was just add another license. You know, it, it sort of just is what it is to be yeah. able to operate. You've got to have as simple as that. Yeah, so, fair enough. Yeah. And I'm of the opinion that if I, you know, it's not worth taking a risk in not having one because it only takes getting caught once and every other license is gone. Yeah, Dom, domino effect. Yeah. Yeah, it's not worth the risk. So, yeah. And um, uh, we're talking about uh, a Gogi Institute. Um, yes. Yeah. What, what, yeah. How so, did that start up? And yeah, so basically, 2017, I, I did Afghan. For 12 months, I went over there uh, with the Australian Embassy looking after the ambassador and stuff. Um, 
over there. One of my cert mates got me the job. He was my team leader over there. So I was <laughs> contacted to you know, not what you know. Yeah. Um, and I left uh, sort of towards the end of 2017, starting in January. I think I left in October, November or something like that. So just under 12 months over there. And um, I got a phone call from my now business partner, Reese, Reese Stewart, and he uh, he's an ex-Special Forces um, officer. Okay. And he, he, he'd advertised for a job in the UAE, and my resume had been sent to him by multiple people that he knew um, just when he put it out there. So he sort of contacted me and said, oh, if guys are sending it to me, then you know, are you interested? So I did a six-week gig over there in the UAE, just a uh, training job over there. Yeah. And when I came back, Reese sort of gave me this letter saying that all the reports had come back pretty good. So nice. uh, he then offered me a job uh, with a company called Kinetic Fighting. Um, Kinetic Fighting is run by a guy called Paul Kale, who's extremely well known in the special forces industry. Um, and they were training the military. Yeah. So they do a lot of firearms training. Um, uh, Paul's like an expert in unarmed combatives. He's on the committee for the Olympic Games for the unarmed for the yeah. I, I recognise the name, but yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Very, very, very well known guy. Um, yeah. So he sort of said, "I've got a training gig. We're training the army in close protection. Um, would you be keen to to jump on board?" So I jumped on board with that, and it was sort of the first time I'd walked in where everybody was ex-military. Yeah. Um, and I was sort of the only cop. There was one other cop, a big Al, but Al was about 100 years old, and he, he was there as well, but he was a very old guy, but, geez, he can shoot. So yeah. um, but it turned out I had all these young guys that were all uh, ex-military, ex-SAS, uh, ex-commando. Um, so sort of when I walked in, it was probably the first time where I sort of did feel sort of out of – out of my depth, not out of my depth, but just sort of out of place a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I wondered how they'd take the fact that I was ex-police. So uh, I know one of them came up and sort of said, look, I've already put the feelers out about you and to find out what you like, blah, blah, blah. And I said, hey, no dramas, I do the same. You know, yeah, yeah. exactly. Due diligence. So, yeah. So I sort of did a, I did this course with Kinetic. Uh, Reese was their operations guy at the time. Um, and then when that finished, while we were out having dinner and stuff like that, Reese and I were talking, we had the same thoughts, the same ideas on the industry, what we wanted to do business-wise, et cetera. And, and out of that, we basically came up with an idea to create uh, a Gogi Training Institute. Cool. So yeah. we supplied the training in uh, close protection, firearms, first aid, advanced first aid, um, and that sort of stuff. So that was yeah. sort of how that came about so we did a fair bit of research Reese writes a lot of the programs um because yeah as we did in the military and stuff so yeah. uh yeah so that's sort of where that was born out of and that, that was right before COVID hit yeah. and COVID sort of put a bit of a dent in it we haven't been able to run any of the close protection stuff because of COVID yeah uh, it's, and, and there's requirements with RTOs and that, and we're not an RTO yet. So um, we're in the process of getting that. We're in the process of applying for that now. Yeah. But some of the RTOs that we've been sort of tied up with haven't been the easiest to deal with or, or you know, they've been a bit, bit of a pain. So sure. um, we thought we'll go at ourselves now. So that's what we're, we're planning to do. Yeah, nice, nice one. And uh, I was going to say, with, you know, we were talking about the mindset and resilience and stuff before, like when uh, going through your search training, do you find that that sort of helps you in, you know, in your private life and in, in what you're doing now in your different projects? Yeah, definitely. I think we're all sort of people with our background, we're all pretty well driven. People yeah. call them alpha males or yeah. whatever you want to call it. But I think you're driven in most things you do. 
I think if you have things that don't quite work out, you probably don't worry about them too much. You know, yeah. and, and I have a bit of a motto that if, you know, if I can do something to change it, I will. Um, if I can't do anything about it, I just don't care. You know, yeah. it's like, you know, it's like people's opinions. Everyone has one and, and your opinion makes no difference to what I do or how I do things. So, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and I think so when you have sort of things that don't quite go the way you want or to the timelines that you need, you just adjust. You, you adjust what you need to and then you keep moving on and yeah. move forward. If you procrastinate and keep thinking about what you should have done or whatever, then you know, things just won't happen. Yeah, no, it's like bang on. Yeah, I like that. It's, you know, it's it's all about energy. Like, where, where are you going to put your, you invest your time and your energy and your resources? Yeah. Like, you, you're going to do it with things that you can actually tangibly change and, and have a, you know, control over. Um, so, yeah, so with COVID, how, how did you, what, what's the latest? How, how's, how are things going in Australia? How did you go throughout the whole pandemic? Yeah, I, I got pretty lucky <laughs> right when it all happened. I got a full-time close protection um, contract oh. uh, with the company. So we had uh, we had three guys rotating through one of my clients through that whole period. Um, so so for me, it was it wasn't too bad. Obviously, the the Gogi training sort of got put on a back burner. Just yeah. we cancelled our training because you couldn't couldn't do it. Yeah. Um, but it allowed me to focus on that part of it. So we sort of had this the one full-time client through that whole period. Plus I was still doing a little bit of surveillance work and, and that sort of stuff. So I've always sort of got that to fall back on, which is, yeah. which is nice. handy. You know, I can take that on when I want to and when I don't. Um, so, yeah, so we sort of had this full-time client that we looked after through that whole period, which just kept us going financially and, and sort of set us up nicely in those last two years. And then yeah. um, obviously, you know, at, at the end of COVID, you have one of the, one of my clients is master chef and I look after the, the judges on that. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, so I was looking after a, a, an international client one time when we went to George Calambaris' restaurant and um, I got talking to George and he, we, we sort of exchanged numbers. Just uh, It was more so that George could arrange restaurants for me and my clients yeah. when they come out. But um, about six months later, I got a phone call from uh, Andermont Shine, who, who make MasterChef, and, and that George had requested me as their security because they were bumping it up due to the terrorist threat at the time. Okay, um, yeah. So I sort of ended up with MasterChef looking after the judges, and um, that went quite for two years because they didn't go out in public. So yeah. I didn't look after the boys for a little while. And then um, last year, around June or July, I got a phone call again from Endemol Shine, and, but this time it was for a new show. Um that they've released, which we talked about. And um, so the show Hunted. So sort of right on the tail end of COVID, I had I had uh, the client that I had full-time finished up. Yeah. But then the opportunity came with Hunted where Reese and I are now part of this new TV program, which has been – it's actually the number one TV show uh, in Australia. At the nice. Moment. Congratulations. So, That's awesome. Yeah. So we got lucky. Uh, but it's a great program. And, and they've brought in a guy by the name of Ben um, Owen from, from the UK. He's an ex-MI5 uh, agent, I think. But he was yeah. on the US version of the same show. Okay, yeah. So he's yeah. got came out as well. And we've just um, – yeah, we finished, wrapped up filming in March. And it's gone to air last week. Uh, and, yeah, it's been really successful. And I think that's a result of the skill set that we bring uh, but not just us, but the guys that work for us. We supply the entire ground force yeah. for the show uh, yeah. with a number of ex-regiment guys, a couple of commandos and some female uh, ex-coppers. So, That's uh, awesome. Yeah, we'll see where it ends up, but it, it's all going well for us now. And COVID hasn't really had a financial effect on us as such, so it's been good. 
Yeah, it sounds like, I mean, like everything you've done so far in your life, I think it's just sort of seamlessly kind of transition into the other thing. Um, don't which know about seamless. Awesome. What's that? <laughs> I don't know about seamless. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll edit that out then. <laughs> um, no, it was, it was funny because um, I was, uh, obviously, it's, uh, you've, you've posted a few of the trailers out on your um, on your social, on your LinkedIn, and um, checked it out. And yeah, I remember seeing a, the similar format show, and I think, there was a new UK version as well, wasn't there? Yeah, UK yeah. have done like six or seven civilian series, and they've done three celebrity versions of it. Okay, so yeah, I think yeah. they've just finished filming a celebrity version. So I was going to say, so like the, the scope is kind of endless with with that sort of format yeah. of um, of television. And I showed my wife the uh, the trailer. She's like, "That looks so cool." I'm like, "I think it's yeah. a sign that the public, you know, only see in movies like you know you, you know the Jason Bourne sort of movies and yeah. uh, that that sort of thing." So like seeing it. In real life, even though you know it is it is television, yeah, it's it's kind of it's kind of nice. It brings a different perspective that the public can, can sort of see in intelligence yeah, gathering and, and how it works on the ground yeah. and that sort of thing. Yes, uh, yeah, absolutely. I think one of the big things for me is that uh, having read a lot of the comments, you you've got parents who are seeing this and kids that are watching it with them and seeing it, and now getting an understanding of the sort of things that that can be pulled off mobile phones and laptops and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, and it's yeah. actually opening up conversations about what they should and shouldn't be posting and this sort of stuff. And now I think if a, if a reality TV show can teach, you know, kids that side of it and make them a bit safer online, then you know, it's a good job. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just happy it's a reality show without the Kardashians. So, you know, that's a, yeah. that's a win for me. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's Absolutely. awesome. So um, that's that, that's obviously finished filming. It's it's out the air. Where um, where can people yep. watch it? Uh, it's on timings. channel channel ten or ten play. Uh, yep. I don't know that it's available overseas as yet. Um, yep. I, I believe it will be eventually. But I know that there are some stuff that they're um, putting out online. I think that some people can sort of get access to. But ten play and channel ten is the main one. Okay, cool. Yeah, well, I'll I'll put links, um, you know, to Channel Ten at least on the on the show notes, and people can. You can jump on there. I think the Hunted Hunted AU, I think, is the Facebook page where the official yeah. Facebook page. So, awesome, yeah. nice, nice one. And um, and yeah, now that it's wrapped up filming and stuff, what what what's going on in your life? What what do you have planned for the future? So I've sort of slipped back into doing the surveillance sort of work at the moment. So I've just been a little bit busy with the surveillance side of it. I've got some close protection stuff coming up sort of hopefully towards the end of the year, a couple of things through there. And then uh, I I train the RSPCA in how to humanely destroy animals and that sort of thing. So we've just just wrapped up a week of training with them. And, um, yeah, so I've sort of got a little few things coming and going, but it's nice to be able to sort of do things for a week or two and then be home for a couple of weeks or longer. So it's sort of been a while since I've been able to do that, and it's nice to be home with family and and that sort of thing. So I can keep doing that for a little while. I'll be happy. Yeah, nice. What what was it like? Uh, you know, so sort of as a guy who who does sort of surveillance reconnaissance, you're sort of a bit more gray man in the shadows. What was it like having a, a film crew around? Like, was that something that you had to really yeah. adjust to? Or no, not really. I suppose sort of having worked with Master Chef and being not not in front of the camera, but on the other side, sort of being around the cameras wasn't a a bad thing and really it was just it's just a case to do your job and the camera just yeah. happened to be filming what you were doing so yeah, yeah nice. there's no script there's no nothing so it's just do what do what you do and yeah just call the camera 
No, awesome. Um, look, I think we, we'll we'll wrap up there, and um, that, it's yeah. absolutely amazing to catch up with you and uh, another you know former big ball veteran, police veteran. So it's it's good to it. to chat. Um, where can people you know f- sort of find you? Are, you? are you on any social media or anything like that? Or sort yeah, of so I'm on uh, so I'm on LinkedIn. Um, you can grab me on there or uh, Facebook. Yeah, and then the business has got an Instagram page, Agogi Ti. Um, on there, so uh, I think they're the only ones we've got. But we've got the website, uh, gogiti.com or tristategroup.com.au. Um, yeah, awesome. Either one of those. Um, but yeah, certainly always happy for people to get in contact, particularly for work. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I'll, I'll link all that uh, in the bottom as well. Um, yeah, so thanks again, man. And um, yeah, hopefully, maybe next time I'm back in Australia or if you're up in the UK, we'll, uh, we'll catch up in person. Absolutely.